0: I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian medical education podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas asking their opinion on their certain conditions and obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered and addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoy the whole program and welcome once again to Aussie MedEd. And in this edition, we get to speak to Irina Hollington, consultant pain specialist, physician and anaesthetist. Irina works in public at the Central Adelaide Health Network, as well as in private at the International Spine Centre and Pain Med SA. Originally from Germany, she obtained a fellowship in anaesthesia and a fellowship in chronic pain medicine in 2017 and enjoys a wide and varied practice across both. Today, Irina is going to talk to us about pain and the management of chronic pain and acute pain issues. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopedic surgeon based in Adelaide and also a senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide involved in orthopaedic musculoskeletal teaching. I hope you enjoy the podcast series, and if so, please feel free to subscribe. Give us a like or review, or tell your friends about it. We look forward to having you listen to our podcast series, and we hope you find it enjoyable. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the, the traditional custodians of the land for which this podcast has been produced, and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. Well, now gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Irina Hollington, who has a particular focus on multidisciplinary approach to pain management. She's got a passion for learning and teaching medical students and doctors in training, and she holds an adjunct position with the University of Adelaide as senior clinical lecturer and instructs at various courses at the College of Anaesthetists, the Faculty of Pain Medicine and the College of Surgeons. Welcome Dr. Irina Hollington to Aussie MedEd. Thank you for coming on board, Irina. I'd like to start off by asking you how you got into pain management and what drew you towards this area.
1: Well, probably a little bit like always a medical journey. It's a bit of what interests you at university, what you grow up with and what you get exposed to with your colleagues. My first job was in a university hospital that had a big trauma focus in the north of Germany. And as part of being a trauma hospital, there was a big emphasis on regional technique and anesthesia without general anesthetic and lots of nerve blocks. So my first exposure was putting in blocks into people and conducting awake anaesthetics, just with headsets and CDs running in the background, and people watching their neotroscopy on their own screen and of them.
0: Key pain management was what drew you initially. Is that the bulk of your management, or is it now more chronic pain scenarios?
1: Uh, today I work more as a chronic pain specialist and across. A very setting, public and private. I still do interventional pain medicine. I spend probably about a quarter of my time as an anaesthetist, but not much with blocks involved there. That's basically just to keep my proficiency as an anaesthetist going. So that's basically big surgery, spinal surgery and general surgery.
0: How do you actually classify pain and what actually is the cause of the pain? I believe it's more than just organic causes that can be associated with pain. Is that correct?
1: The most important description of pain would be by the International Association for the Study of Pain, (IASP), and it's defined as an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such a damage. And I guess it's important to understand that pain is always a very personal experience and is influenced by a variety of factors, biological, psychological and social factors. Pain and nociception are not exactly the same phenomena. And pain can be varied by your life experiences and your concept of pain, your understanding. So if we talk about acute pain, then obviously pain and perception are more aligned there. That so means there is an acute tissue dental injury and part of the definition is that this kind of pain is less than three months. While if we talk about subacute pain, it's between three and six months, so the initial injury might have healed, but there is still an ongoing pain, which is not necessarily a no activation. And then there is chronic pain, which is what the brain, in the greater sense of things, makes out of this pain. So for some reason, the pain is continuing and it's not always related to an underlying pathophysiology that we can identify in acute medicine.
0: And is the initial onset of pain, or does it have to be purely organic pathology that causes it? Can it be also associated with like chemical release, such as in cancers and things as well? Does that affect it as well?
1: No, absolutely. Well, there's a variety of things that trigger pain experience. In cancer, obviously, there's also often related to the cancer metabolic changes and neurological changes that trigger the initial pain cascade. So, somewhat, there is often a nociceptor activation. I guess where it becomes important to not to understand the difference between acute and chronic pain is the treatments are quite different. If you have an acute nociceptive event, then you should always treat that first because once that settles, you're dealing with what the body, the brain, the pain system has made out of it. But you can't tackle this if there's still an ongoing mechanism driving an ongoing pain flare up. So, you know, common conditions would be, for example, in endometriosis, we say people who have endometriosis, we want them period-suppressed because then we know the endometriotic cells don't progress and spread, we've got a better way of dealing with the chronic pelvic pain that's been caused by the endometriosis and settle this down. And that's probably across the board for many conditions that end up in chronic pain.
0: So what you're actually saying is that patients vary on their perception of pain depending on their life experiences. Are there other factors influence patients' perception of pain, such as smoking or body habitus or even the use of morphine over the years? Does that affect the influence of or perception of pain in itself?
1: We do know, for example, that people who are exposed over a period of more than three months, a dose of a rough, a roughly above 40 oral morphine equivalent, develop what we call opiate-induced hyperalgesia and opiate tolerance. And we know that even, for example, low-dose in over a prolonged period of time sensitizes pain pathways and sets you up for what we would call sensitization of the analgesia receptors. Equally, we do know that people who are smoking very heavily, they've got different enzymes induced in their bodies, so for example, in the liver, and they break down some analgesia a lot faster than others. So they might set themselves up for getting less analgesia and more pro-inflammatory states. There is early research looking into all sorts of lifestyle conditions that make you more prone for pain. We know, for example, people who have a higher weight have more lipophilic cells, and that itself drives an immune response in the body. And whilst we don't quite completely understand that, we know that if you optimize that side of things, you can treat their pain overall much better. And there's early data suggesting that's the same in, for example, neurological conditions. Migraine headaches its one of those ones where we work with antibodies, trying to reduce sort of an inflammatory component in the background because we know that those things are a small driver. However, in the early stages, so we can't just say one thing, we can't put our finger on weight loss, for example, and say, this is going to be protective if you do this and this. It's a combination of things. And I think the important thing is to understand that who's that person in front of you that's coming with that pain problem what can we do about this? because the treatment might lie in different areas and often it's a combination of optimising a variety of areas really well to then achieve some pain reduction and a better quality of life.
0: Therefore, what you're saying is there's various factors that influence pain perception of, of a patient and not every patient behaves in exactly the same way.
1: Well, I guess you have to be a little bit careful. If you have a tissue injury, you will experience acute pain. There's no question about it. Pain is one of the most innate warning signs in our body and it's an important part of how our brain learns about pain and protective mechanism, how to make wiser choices. Now, how, For example, when you look at toddlers learning how to run or walk, they run first, they fall a couple of times before they realize they need to go a little bit slower at certain areas. One of the big theories behind it is that pain is a really important concept of our learning and our wisdom and sets us up for making wiser choices. Now, if we activate those alert and learning pathways in concepts that suggest danger, so for example, you have a massive motor trauma, you don't remember all that much, but you remember that at the time, suddenly you had massive pain, and it lasted for a long period of time, those are the patients that can more likely, once they've overcome the first set of obstacles, probably be at risk of developing pain down the track. Now, there's other things we know, and we call this theory sort of in big, basic things. It's the second-hit theory for chronic pain. You might have some terrible experiences in your childhood regarding having an unsupportive parent, having an unsupportive psychosocial environment, being denied some relief when you needed it at most as a child. So your psychological well-being is affected early on. And you've probably managed this all your life really well, but when we do see patients in chronic pain, We sort of ask them around what has led to this development to impair your quality of life to the degree that you're now coming to see me here. And it is often that people have been incredibly resilient all their life, they've managed multiple stresses really, really well, but eventually it just hit a point where they were running empty and they had no other resources left. And so often it is that it is a combination of things adding up to it. But I think it's really important to say, if you have chronic pain, if you have an appendectomy or broken bone or whatever is your acute pain event, that is obviously very strong nocicept activation, and some people respond to pain stimuli different than others. So some are more sensitive and more and seeking a reassurance and soothing medication than others who are absolutely tough and get away with very little. But that doesn't mean that they don't have no receptor activation, that they don't experience chronic uh, acute pain. And I think it's really important because Acute pain treated really well reduces your risk of chronic pain, while acute pain treated really badly. So, loss of pain experiences, lots of loss of control experiences sets you up for down the track being more likely to develop in chronic pain. So, one of the things that initiatives are really good at and ought to be really good at is providing the best acute pain therapy. So for example, intraoperative blocks to lower the amount of general anesthesia and and other medications that don't last all that long into the early recovery phase, good multimodal pain management and the early 48 hours of big surgery, these are really important concepts to reduce the risk of pain development down the track.
0: One of the things that always surprises me with the blocks, though, is almost the rebound pain they get when it wears off. How do you explain that? Almost like the pain's been waiting there for them to wear off. And I don't quite understand how that works. I'd like to let you know that Aussie MedEd is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare's products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist.
1: If you look at the pharmacology, it's a very simple concept. We're using, in regional techniques, a lot of local anesthesia and everyone who's ever had some dental surgery knows exactly how it hurts when the dental block goes in and you're feeling fantastic while the dentist is doing his job. You get told when you walk out not to eat and drink anything hot or extremely cold and not to chew on your lip or on your cheeks while it's still numb. Some people still do. Once it starts wearing off, there's a very short time frame between some sensation coming back and it having worn off completely in the range of 10 to 20 minutes and you suddenly regret that you ever tried to play with your lip or your cheek and it hurts just absolutely badly. So it is a direct effect of the medication we use. I think the important thing to understand is, number one, patient selection. A patient who has a bit of a control aspect to their experience probably would be best served by really having a good information around this and you know not being forced into a block, but really talking about what, ha- what would you do when it starts wearing off and being really warned about this. So I say to all my patients, the local anaesthetic will have the tendency to wear off in the middle of the night. So when you feel the first sensation, I want you to have something by the bedside and take something straight away because within 20 minutes, it will have worn off completely and it can be a really, really sore then. And I think that's what we often see when we don't prepare patients or we send them back to the ward with a really well-working block only then to sitting on the bell for an hour or so because night staff is just overwhelmed and can't get there, chasing up with medication when the sensation returns. So what people... Experience is related to what they are educated and informed about and also how well we manage the things around it. The final aspect is just not just using local anesthetic. And there's, the literature is full of local anesthetic blocks for anesthesia using substances that prolong the effect of the block. So the local can wear off, But for example, the dexmedetomidine or the dexmedicine or the clonidine in the block provides a longer-acting and slower return of the sensory neurons. And therefore, it won't be quite so sudden and so intense.
0: So the trick's to have a, a combination of both a local block with variation between local anesthetic and other medications in the block, as well as having the patient prepare to take regular analgesics or start the analgesics the moment it starts wearing off so it comes off on slowly.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also a variety, so not just relying on one analgesic. In the past, we were really good in just being completely opiate-based. That's slowly changing in our practice. And we see using a lot more use of co-energesics, such as paracetamol, uh, the NSAIDs, you know, low-dose opiate combination opiates, typical opiates, such as tramadol and palaxia coming in so that we don't just rely on new receptor cover, but we rely on a variety of pain receptors being reduced in their intensity.
0: Now, how does the pain pathways tend to work? I mean, I used to get quite confused between the different tracks in the spine. Do you consider that a lot when you're treating a pain specialist, uh, the different tracks and the, how they cross over in the spine, etc.?
1: I think it's important to have a basic understanding of it because everything we understand better, we make more sense to it. What we need to keep in mind is first these concepts are theoretical concepts. No one knows for sure. They haven't been a completely proof, still a concept. And we understand aspects of it fairly well, but some aspects we don't understand just yet. I guess the main thing for me is there's two important pathways. There's the pathways going up the spine from the tissue injury over the DRG into the posterior horn. And then yes, depending on what kind of input it is, and obviously. We have different areas of input depending on whether it is an area of high perception, so for example, a lip space of a really high perception, or is it an area of really low perception, like for example, the vista on the inside. And depending on that, yes, we do know that some of it crosses over, over several levels, but it is not as complete as the textbooks say. So for example, we do know that we have people who have on the paper fulfilling all the criteria for complete spinal denervation due to paraplegia, but they still have pain pathways that can be activated below the lesion. Now, as per our current medical criteria, that is not possible, but we clinically see this all the time. And there is emerging literature suggesting that in specific tests, or sensory fibres only, you can prove that there are fibres crisscrossing, despite it being called a complete lesion. So all these concepts you need to see, it's as children of the time when we try to make sense of it, and some of them have stayed the same, and some of it have been extended. I guess the important thing for me is there's a nociception in the periphery. It goes over the spinal cord and goes up into the brain. And then in the brain, it is processed by the central hub and goes into all sorts of areas. There is the mitosensory cortex. There is the motor cortex. There's the hormonal response. There's the response with the limbic system. There's the response with the frontal brain, threat appraisal. And all these centers, not only do they receive from the central hub, and the hypothalamus, all this information, but they also talk to each other. And out of this, the brain makes the decision whether it's processing these pathways or not, or whether it's going to increase the processing or decrease the processing. And there's one really powerful pathway that we like using in chronic pain a lot, and that's the inhibitory pathways that are going down to the d as we call it. And this descending inhibitory inhibition is really good in telling on various levels, whether it is at the level of the central hub or whether it is at the level of the spinal cord where the input comes in or even on the level of the DRG. Let's not worry too much about this or let's dim this down. And some of the drugs we use for chronic pain, so for example, ketamine is one of the ones that we think are inhibiting the amount of information that goes up, but also we can enhance what's going down. And that's also where some of our new therapies with applying electrodes, the spinal cord over sacral spinal cord and neuromodulation works as well that we dim what's going up and enhance what's coming down as an inhibition and there's a lot of interesting things happening that will come into the medicine in the future.
0: I presume we all have some experience with this pain inhibition pathways. I know that when I knock my elbow and it's about to be sore, you rub it and it reduces the level of pain you experience. I also know that people who get injuries whilst winning a football game perhaps don't get as much pain as if they've just suddenly lost the game. So I presume that's both the peripheral and central ways of desensitising or reducing the pain levels that people experience.
1: That's right. It's got something to do with what your brain makes out of it. And so where you put your attention plays a huge role in it.
0: What you now just
1: mentioned was, you know, obviously happiness factors that make you distracted from it. But also we know this from acute trauma. There's lots of stories of people who walked kilometers hours with their arms in their backpack and really amazing stories of survivors and people not realizing this until they were in a safe place and their brain allowed them to actually scan what else was happening with their body at that moment in time and and that's Often, where we also see lots of the chronic therapies are in terms of tapping into what resources did you use in the past to manage your pain or your life, or you know, when you had so happy experiences and revisiting what is part of your making that makes you stronger and more resilient in using this. And sometimes it's just that people in chronic pain have experience such a decline in their function in their life that the pain becomes the overwhelming thing that is processed all the time. And that's straight going to the basis of learning. If We get exposed to one thing all the time. Obviously, we're getting really efficient and really good at processing this. But if that's something that we don't want to do, then we obviously need to reduce that harmful behavior. And distraction is a really valid part of treatment.
0: Now, before we get on to the, basically the assessment of a patient with the pain, and just a quick question was regarding the differences between like nociceptive, inflammatory, neuropathic and functional type pain. How does that fit into the picture of acute versus chronic and pain pathways?
1: Neuropathic pain can be acute or chronic. And neuropathic pain refers to some damage in the sensory system. So whether that is, for example, one of the many receptors in the skin, so, you know, we've got, Receptors for movement, we've got receptors for superficial pressure, deep pressure, cold, warm. We've got receptors for positional sense, so in the tendons, for example. So we've got a multitude of peripheral receptors. And if any of these receptors are damaged, then they've got two ways to respond. So either they joint work, and as part of not being active, the other receptors have an overreactiveness to a stimulation. Or they get activated at a really low level where they shouldn't be activated, and they respond with an exaggerated response. So that's, for example, what we see when we see people with allodynia, so where people describe that movement of airflow over the skin hurts them. Or people who say, if I go out into the cold, in winter my pain's always worse, because if I go out into the cold, just the cold sets that skin part off that part of my hand or that part of my face or that's really sensitive. So that is part of the neurological system being damaged and it can happen in the periphery at the spinal level but also at the central level. In terms of inflammation, obviously, wherever there are inflammatory mediators, whether that is in response to tissue damage or response to inflammatory cells, so we've had a few conditions, adipose tissues, rheumatological conditions are where there is inflammatory mediators, that also can exercise these peripheral centers. And every time there is a peripheral sensitization, the body's response is to activate the next center up, so that's called then the central sensitization, and if centers are activated often enough, they lower their threshold because obviously it seems relevant to the body, and as part of lowering the thresholds, you get an earlier danger response sent to the brain, and that's where you do the final processing. That's
0: excellent. Well, really, there's multiple ways of assessing and classifying pain then, obviously based upon the time that the pain's been present for into acute, subacute, and chronic, and causative factors. What are the other factors you consider when you go to assess a patient? What is your main approach to assessing a patient with a chronic pain scenario?
1: Well, I guess the important thing is listening to what the patient's goal in their treatment is. Often people have an understanding or have a thought what they think is happening with them. And it is really important that we don't override this because they often have had difficulties with the medical system dismissing it or not being able to come up with a solution and that obviously adds to the frustration and the difficulties finding a treatment pathway. So for me it's really important understanding what does this patient want from me today. If we for example need to talk straight up about medication then there's no point fuddling around trying to do pain education because at the start of this consultation has to be the medication education. If it is that the diagnosis is not clear or they feel like they have been dismissed in their workup, it might be a really important part to get the team back together and say, let's look into what workup you've had, what your doctors were trying to explain. And sometimes my role is clarifying what they understood or didn't understand. And I guess next Part of it would be for me to understand what kind of things they think they can do in their treatment and where can I open up the conversation to embark on treatment that they might have never considered, might never been interested in. What makes this person tick to to take up something new? Are they psychologically flexible and is it a matter of exposing them to new concepts or are they quite fixed in what we can do with them because obviously the team that I would get on board and and the approach I would take on board depends very much on what they are up for at this moment in time. If there is a massive history of, for example, anxiety and depression or a massive history of high-dose opiate medication, then the patient might at this stage not be able to engage with much treatment program because they are so battling on the other front that we need to achieve stability either from a pharmacological level or from a, a psychological level first to get them to work with us on other approaches to pain management.
0: When you talk about the team that you involve, who makes up the team? What are the different members of the team? I presume a psychologist is, is part of it, There's obviously a physician in managing the acute causes and obviously a pain specialist, but who else is involved in
1: it? Well, I would say first and foremost it's the patient. Then it's the patient support group. Nothing happens without the important family members or partners being involved and understanding. They can be your biggest ally, but also your biggest obstacle in treatment. I would always say the GP is one of the most important people to help negotiating uh, medical pathways and also get access to treatment under Medicare rebate. And then I would include any other specialist who has been involved to this stage and who is keen on continuously supporting the patient. I find that most of my medical colleagues are petrified when they have pain patients by themselves. But the moment, they understand that there is a team on board and they are just one of many team members. They are very willing to do their part and their role in it because they know they, they don't have to manage it by themselves. And then if we talk about chronic pain treatment, I think most chronic pain conditions benefit from pain education, whether that can be done via an online course or whether we need then a specialized practitioner on board or whether we need a pain lobby, you know, pain education group, pain sufferer group on board. And then there is often a psychologist who focuses on what concept of pain do you have and where has the pain taken your psychological well-being? Where has it hijacked it? And what could we do very practically to improve your well-being so that we are opening up more resources to help you cope with pain better? So you know, it could be simple things like how do we manage anxiety? How do we get you to sleep better? Do you have a good sleep hygiene? How do you cope with your activities? Are you overdoing it all the time or do you... Are you able to give yourself permission to take some time out for yourself? And then finally, I would say a physio that is experienced in pain management is another really, really important part. Often people have seen many of these practitioners before, but not with a particular focus on pain. And while the attempts and the treatment pathways have been correct, sometimes people have been pushed too hard, too early, and they weren't ready on a multitude of levels. If you're, for example, on high dose opiates and you only think at half the speed, and now we're asking you to do some new things, some new strategies to help your well being and get you physically active again, then we might completely force you because you just don't have that energy on board. And so sometimes you need to just revisit what has been done before at what conditions and see how you can optimise those conditions.
0: So certainly this is not going to be a quick process for someone who's obviously had pain for a while. What would be the average time to expect to see a result? I mean, it doesn't sound like it's going to happen overnight, that's for sure, with all the sort of processing that's going on.
1: Well, I guess everyone is on a slightly different journey. It's hard to say, oh, you've got chronic pain and this will take this amount of time. I guess I go by what psychiatrists often say when people descend, for example, into depression or anxiety. The time it takes to get to this diagnosis is the time to get you to really good well-being. So that could be acute three months, six months, sometimes longer. I think the important thing is to instill hope when you deal with chronic pain and talk about things you can achieve in small steps. As humans, we're really bad sticking with processes that take one or two years and it seems too far away and that's a long time frame. So often when people come to me, and that's one of the things I talk a lot with our registrars and fellows about, is that I might be able to see where I can have you in a year or in two years' time if the treatment goes according to my plan, but that's not helpful for the patient. So my role is to analyse where they're at, come up with really specific things to help them develop SMART goals, so achievable within a defined timeframe that are relevant to them and work from there and celebrate all those small improvements. Often good pain treatment is a combination of a multitude of treatments over a prolonged period of time. So I would say six to eight months sort of, usually what I sort of have in my mind. Some people take a lot less, some people take a lot longer, but it is about achieving and celebrating the small wins on the way. If at the point when you come to me you are hardly able to, Participate in sitting for a meal with your family, hardly able to leave the house without someone accompanying you. Once you've been to another medical appointment, you are buggered for the next five days and you're not able to do very much. Then you're obviously starting from a lot lower level than someone who struggles to stay in the work because of their pain, but they're actually still doing this every day. And so it just depends on where you're at at this moment in time and hence the goals have to, be slightly, have to be slightly different
0: too. I think you've probably answered this right at the start. Obviously, as North orthopedic surgeon, when we see people, we've been told them to put up with their knee pain for as long as possible before they have a knee replacement and then they have a knee replacement and the pain's significantly better, that's a person who's probably had chronic pain for a year or two but then suddenly had surgery and they've got better overnight. And that probably clouds the issue with the other groups of patients that you see. How does this sort of patient vary from the sort of patients which aren't settling down or improving with time? I need treatment from yourselves.
1: You're talking about the ideal patient who has put up with their knee pain, but while they were trying to live with their knee pain for as long as possible, they weren't you know, necessarily putting more weight on or losing their muscle deconditioning or started an enormous amount of medication that have now led to other side effects in their body. They're not opiate tolerant. So if you look at probably 70 to 80% of patients that are in this category do really, really well. But we when we talk about chronic pain, we're looking at the ones that are more vulnerable and where other things have happened while they were on the waiting list or while they were trying to draw it out. So the ideal patient that you're talking about has a fairly high degree of self-efficacy and they have a fairly good understanding on what is reasonable for their health and they've got a level of education to understand why you are proposing to delay that knee replacement because they are too young or there are other factors. The population I think that is most at risk are the ones that don't have those reserves and don't have that necessary that support. And I think those are the ones we need to look out for. And there's a few screening things like if you had a massive pain experience in the past, if you have had a significant exposure to high dose and in the past, if you have had a significant psychological or social vulnerability, to homelessness or experiences and childhood trauma that happened in the past, you might have overcome them really well, but you are a little bit more of a sitting duck in the 2nd hip theory that once you exceed what you can manage, you can drop off fairly fast. And it is about identifying those patients and making sure that they don't deteriorate while they're on the waiting list.
0: Hey, look, we've gone to the issues. In the past, there's been a bit of a reliance on the opioids, and you've already mentioned that. And that's become a bit of an issue now, and you see adverts on the TV regularly talking about being careful not to overuse opioids. How is this being addressed in Australia at the moment?
1: Okay, so I guess there's two things. It's not just an Australian phenomenon. We've had this everywhere in the first world. That's between 1990 and 2015, we were quite liberal in our opioid prescribing. It was somewhat driven by a major paper in the 1990s that talked about pain as the fifth vital sign, and at the time, people looked at palliative care patients and said, if know, in this group of dying patients, we don't give them enough opiates, we are underdoing them, this is really inhumane, and so we should be treating pain better, we've got fantastic medication available for it. So you look at different papers internationally, and you can see that that was a common phenomena. Now, this somewhat changed over the years. And what as a consequence happened is that some countries had a massive overprescription of opiates. So, for example, we've had data from the US at times prescribing doses up to 1000 milligram or morphine equivalent. If Australia, we've had data of people having 400 milligram or morphine equivalent a day. So massive opiate medication. Parallelly, since the mid-2010, 2015, basic research papers came out saying if you give high-dose opiates to patients, you uh, create chronic pain by affecting some of the immunomodulators in the brain that are responsible for, for keeping pain pathways slick and mobile. And basically, they get completely contaminated and the pain pathways get sluggish and therefore you create more chronic pain. And one of the first things that happened afterwards is that then in Australia, we started looking into, for example, the use of codeine, which had been on the market as an over-the-counter product for period pains and headaches for decades. And what we found is that a lot of people had years of codeine, which gets in the body transformed into morphine, depending on what your genetic profile is, you get a higher or lower rate of transformation. But we've had decades of young people starting to use as a seemingly harmless painkiller, but over time getting used to it. And basically developing an isogenic morphine tolerance or substance tolerance. So the body gets used to exposure of medication in regular intervals and up titrates its receptors, and hence the benefit from the initial dose doesn't last. So you need more medication to achieve the same thing. And that is obviously a self-fulfilling prophecy because you need an in regular intervals dose increases. And it's basically mirrored what we had in the prescription opiate medication and what we had in the over the counter. So in 2017, Australia-wide, the colleges said, well, we understand the science. There's no role for using opiate medication for simple conditions. So for example, period pain, simple headaches, simple back pain shouldn't be on opiates. Having said that, whilst that was put out by the colleges, there was actually very little follow-up. Only for people in extremely high doses of opiates did we need to apply for what's called in South Australia drugs dependence authorities. Every state has its own mechanism, but they were far and rare and no one really monitored this. Now, every year it's come down to saying, well, our opiates dispensing in Australia had not really changed and it had continued to go up. And in 2018, more people died from prescription medication given for medical indications. So we're not talking about illicits on the market, we're talking about prescription medication for medical conditions. More people died from those medications than from car accidents. And if you look into the data, what population needs high acuity care in the emergency department, so it needs the resuscitation room, 50 percent of the patients ending up in resuscitation have an opiate on board, or benzodiazepine or another sedative substance. Now, in comparison to that, I think trauma is about 20%, heart attacks and stroke about 10%. So, a lot more conditions are urgent emergency care uh, related to medication, prescribed medication, than to actual medical conditions. And obviously, that is a massive discrepancy between what we want to offer in acute medicine to what we are actually doing. As a result of COVID, Last year, the government world, Australia-wide, decided to introduce real-time prescription monitoring. And it came in the eastern states in 2020, South Australia in 2021. And what it means now is that patients and prescribers are monitored whether they prescribe the medication as per college guidelines. And as I said, these guidelines have been in for more than five years. So if you have an acute pain, for example, post-surgery, you can have a packet of 10 or 20 medications for that condition. But if you just have a headache or a period of pain, you shouldn't be giving your patients these medications. Now, what's going to happen Us as a medical profession in general is that we need to relook really look into how do we dispense and prescribe medications for pain conditions. People obviously still present to ED and it's still a huge burden. And it's been in the past, a very simple way of managing these patients saying well you know you don't have an acute pathology here's a packet of medication now go and see your GP but somehow there is a disconnect between that advice and what then happened with the patients down the track. And I think these new prescription guidelines that have come in and will be more and more over the next coming years reinforced will lead to a change to how do we deal with these patients that present in pain.
0: That seems like a good idea. And from what I remember when I worked in the United Kingdom, it seemed like most of the pain relief was prescribed by the general practitioner in a way of keeping track of what was actually being given out. Do you think that's what's going to come here in Australia?
1: Yeah, but it is important to recognise that we can't change this suddenly and put the burden on the GPs because what resources do they then have available? So it is also around driving an innovation and how we're approaching those presentations and how we change what we can offer in medicine. Because at the moment, a GP who's only got five to seven minutes of consultation time available sits there with a fairly complex story which will well and truly exceed that time just to listen to what the problem is. And then what do they have available apart from the script pad or a limited access to psychology or physiotherapy under mental health care plan? I think it is the role of the acute medicine and the big secondary and tertiary centres to provide better support for those communities where I don't think people are shy of managing it, but they just need more tools on hand how to assist their patients.
0: Yes, what you say makes a lot of sense. And that brings us on to our final question, and that's the role of medical marijuana. It's obviously in the media a lot. I guess it's obviously in its infancy at this stage. But really, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I guess infancy is a a lovely description of it. There's two aspects to it. Number one, we know that the appreciation for medical marijuana in the community is really high. So I think 80% of the population are in favour of marijuana being legalised for medical purposes. And then on the other side, we have that we have basically no information what is medical morana because there's about 30 different products, and we don't understand it's over 200 different receptors. And we have very mixed poor quality data for a variety of conditions. There's one big meta-analysis which has led to medical morana being allowed as a food product on the market and getting the TGA approval under this. There's actually no real good data on which pain condition, in what dose, which products. So we understand fairly little about it. From RET studies, we know it works over inducing similar receptors that migraine medications and some antidepressants work on. We know that it affects the metabolizing capacity of the main system in the liver that's responsible for opiate and benzodiazepine metabolism. So it's seems to give you a a dose increase. And we know really well about the overuse from population studies. So the Dunedin study in New Zealand that looked at uh, long-term Mariana use across a lifespan had really good data that you shouldn't be giving it to people under 25 because there is a 10% increase in schizophrenia. And it seems to be safe in the elderly because one of the things it has as a side effect is it makes you sleepy, so you care a little bit less. And it is really well supported in the cancer population, reducing nausea, for example, when you undergo chemotherapy. Now, the majority of my patients is sort of somewhere in the range in between. And I'm very hesitant to prescribe a medication that I have no good data guiding myself and my practice. And I don't understand exactly how it works. So I struggle with that personally. Where do I think... It is suitable. I think if you are an elderly person who does not tolerate any other medication trials and you've been taken through by an experienced person, there might be a role to trial it. But keep in mind, there is an ethical problem with it in terms of accessibility. So it is a very expensive product. You have to pay for it privately. I don't think with the poor database we have available that it will be in the un- in the foreseeable future on the PBS. And the amount of money most patients tell me they spend is in the vicinity of $300 to $500 a month. So it is very, very expensive. And so I would say at this moment in time, let me know if you decide to go down this pathway. I'm happy to assist you with monitoring it. And I'm very willing to say if I think too much, is too much. But I wouldn't advocate for it. I guess the final thing is while you're on it, you can't drive because it comes up like any other illicit medication in your urine drug test. So, if you're using it, you just got to be sure that you're not putting yourself or someone else on the road at risk.
0: Well, that's a brilliant summary. I really, really appreciate your time today, Irina. It's fantastic. And we've actually gone a lot longer than most of these podcasts have gone. I really appreciate mm-hmm. your, your help. And it's a really, I, 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 I can't believe how much I've learned today. So, thank you very much. It's been brilliant. Absolute pleasure, Gibbon. Thank you very much, Dr. Irina Hollington. Thank Bye.
1: you.
0: The information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region, and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as a, one, of, one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie MedEd, or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to give a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us, or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at ed-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.